0: Welcome to the Trial of the Chicago 7 podcast. In 1968, America was a nation in turmoil. The war in Vietnam raged on, claiming a thousand American lives each month. Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in Memphis on April 4th. Two months later, Bobby Kennedy was shot and killed in Los Angeles. In late August, anti-war demonstrators gathered in Chicago to protest outside the Democratic National Convention violent clashes with the police and National Guard ensued. The organizers of those protests, along with Bobby Seale, the chairman of the Black Panther Party, were indicted for conspiracy to cross state lines to incite a riot. And so began one of the most bizarre and momentous trials in American history. I'm John Carroll Lynch, and I play Dave Dellinger, one of the defendants in Aaron Sorkin's The Trial of the Chicago Seven. In this podcast series, you'll be hearing about why Aaron felt compelled to make this film, the startling parallels between the events of 1968 and the trial, and what's happening in America today, and you'll hear from the actors and creative minds that realized the world of the film. Here is your host and narrator, Krista Smith.
1: Welcome to this special episode in which you'll hear from three individuals intimately acquainted with the events surrounding the trial of the Chicago 7 and its aftermath. They include actor Troy Garrity, the son of Tom Hayden, who is played in the film by Eddie Redmayne, and two of the actual defendants in the trial, Lee Weiner and Rennie Davis. These interviews were recorded late last fall, and you'll hear some prescient thoughts on the direction of our current political events from Rennie, who I'm sad to share, passed away earlier this year. You'll also hear how each of them felt about the film, their reflections on the time, and what life looked like following the trial.
2: It's a surreal experience to see um, not only one of your parents portrayed uh, on screen, but actually, you know, a pivotal event in their life and thus in, in your life. One of which I know uh, intimately.
1: This is the voice of Troy Garrity, whose father, Tom Hayden, was a leader of the Students for a Democratic Society and later became an effective and highly respected California senator. Hayden passed away in 2016. As an actor and as part of one of Hollywood's most esteemed families, Troy has
2: a keen understanding of
1: just how challenging it is to bring a story to the screen. My
2: mother is Jane Fonda. My grandfather was Henry Fonda. My uncle was Peter. My cousin is Bridget. I'm an actor. So I know about film. And my mom was a prolific producer. I know how hard it is to actually have an idea, get the script, get the financing, get the cast, and get it onto the screen. Um, it's no easy feat. It's very, very, very difficult. Um And in order to do that, to accomplish that, you have to have real conviction and belief in the material. So I just want to say um, bravo to Aaron Sorkin and and Steven Spielberg. I mean, they really, um, they had a tough fight. They worked on this for a very long time. I know uh, years ago they were, uh, well, Aaron was consulting with my father And um, it started and stopped many times, and I thought this is never going to happen. But God bless him, he he got it done. Despite its lengthy
1: journey to the screen, Rennie Davis, Hayden's fellow leader in the SDS, saw the timing of this film's release as apt.
3: Sorkin's contribution to the timing is is impeccable, you know, and I think he understands, you know, the the timing is, is everything. So you cannot tell this this story without having impact on today. And for that, I am so appreciative of this film coming out. More people watched what happened in Chicago in 1968 than watched the first man landing on the moon on television. So it's just an enormous event. It was a remarkable time, and I believe that why this movie is coming out now, you know, it's sort of like it all went to sleep, but now suddenly the, the Chicago seven are back, you know, symbolically, you know, because the spirit of that time is so so needed today. And uh, the, the, the relationship between 68 and what we went through and what we're facing now today,
1: Writer-director Aaron Sorkin has said this film is like a painting, not a photograph, and that his focus was on capturing the essence of the events. Lee Weiner, a community activist who was an organizer for the National Mobilization Committee to End the War in Vietnam, discussed his portrayal in the film.
4: I didn't have a lot of problems with the characterization of myself in the movie. I was given a couple of good lines. They sounded in fact sarcastic and... and and cynical enough that I could have made them during the trial. Um, So, to see the whole thing, uh, um, not just as a a mono scene, just in the courtroom, um, was strong. I I loved that, that the movie worked. That as far as I'm concerned, that it showed and told in a way that people might notice And pay attention to that resistance to injustice, even in the worst of circumstances, is necessary and possible, whether that's on the streets with brutal police or in a biased and ugly courtroom. I think that message resonates for people in the here and now. The movie early on won my heart because it had um, the scene, which when Abby is asked whether or not, you know, what he would... What it would take for him to give up the revolution? What it would cost? Um, and he answers, my life. That was quite real. And it comes across in the movie as a strong and defiant and very honest um, expression of how we were. First time I watched it was totally straight. The second time I was pretty well-wrecked. Um, and I was trying to figure out which of the defendants, which of my comrades, would be most offended by their characterization in the movie? It surely wasn't me. I guessed Rennie.
3: Well, you know, I mean, in the movie, I'm kind of portrayed as a, you know, a complete nerd. I think it's because I wear glasses. You know, I, you know, I, I do look a little nerdy after a bit back, <laughs> uh, but I, I. Uh, you know, and, and basically, I'm a, I'm a little bit afraid of my own shadow. Uh, you know, I don't think anybody who knew me, you know, saw me that way at all. Certainly not how I saw myself.
1: I asked Troy Garrity what it was like to see Eddie Redmayne play his father.
2: When I heard Eddie Redmayne was cast to play him, I was like, well, that's an odd choice. Um, but he's a brilliant actor, and I have to say watching Eddie, I um, I really, really appreciate him. Now, I don't know whether I was projecting or this is who he actually is, but um, I really felt like he sort of dug in to try to find out who is this real person. I guess I was really honored to see someone take it so seriously and work so hard and be such a great talent that um, being an admirer of acting... Uh, I just, I was really appreciative. I actually forgot that it was about my dad. I just, it was this guy going through his own trial. Um, So that helped. I was surprisingly moved um, several times in the film, um, partially because of the, the narrative that they told and partially because of thinking about my father, who's no longer here, and what he actually went through. Um, and, you know, I was born before he was, uh, acquitted, before his contempt citations were overturned. So, um, so it's personally very deep for me.
1: Troy also shared his views on the essence of the film.
2: The essence is that dissent is an American right. In fact, it's what we are built upon. The rebellion of the people against corrupt power is America. And what we need to be reminded of, and which the film does fairly well, is that when it is taking place, it is irritating. It is not easily digested. It screws up your day-to-day Uh, life. It creates traffic. It creates division. It creates hurt feelings. Um, It's not nice. It's not supposed to be polite when you disrupt the status quo. That's what it is. When the founding fathers were put on trial by John Adams, who went on to become our president, but at the time he was legally defending the crown, he called the mutinous Americans a motley crew. Um, of like scallywags and drunk drunkards. The same holds true in the trial. The same holds true now. You vilify those agents of change because the status quo does not want to relinquish power. And on a more superficial level, we don't want to relinquish uh, comfort um, and security. Because the idea of life in this country without security, which is debatable if we even have it, is just too frightening.
1: I asked Lee Weiner to go back to the beginning of his personal story and explain how he came into a life of activism.
4: I grew up on the south side of Chicago. Um, and there I was lit, I My parents moved me to uh, uh, an outdoor porch, kind of redone as a bedroom, because I was too old to sleep with my younger sister. And But they had poker games once a month or so, and with my father's friends and my mother's friends. My father's friends were mostly mob- a little bit mobbed up, and my mother's friends were mostly former members of the Communist Party. So I heard lots of stories about the real world, um, and I learned at a very young age, that people could in fact work to make the world a better place. And I grew up that way. I mean, how many people at 13 stay up all night listening to a Republican National Convention and the next day try to join the ACLU? But I learned, as many people my age did, um, that politics was a real category. It was an explanation. It was, it was part of their everyday life. It was like being rich or being Jewish or being poor or not Jewish. Politics was an explanation for lots of things that went on. And that I certainly grew up with.
1: For Rennie Davis, his second year in college was a pivotal moment.
3: In my sophomore year in February, this is February 1st, 1960, I watched four black college freshmen Sit down at a Woolworths lunch counter and demand the right to eat equally, go to bathrooms equally, uh, confronting legal segregation. And I was like, you know, you know, thousands of other students watching this. You know, they wa- I watched them, you know, have cigarettes ground out on the back of their neck. Uh, you know, their courage was so incredible. And I would say from that moment on, I was in a movement to basically support civil rights. And uh, that led me to be a community organizer for three years in a poor white Appalachian community in the north side of Chicago. Uh, I then basically joined the anti-war movement that was beginning uh, around 1965. And by 1967, I had been invited to the first group of Americans to go into North Vietnam and see for ourselves what was happening in, in the bombing of that country. I came back and we, I spoke at the first coalition of anti-war organizations. Uh, we had been able, after seven years, to pull together 150 national organizations to work together. This was a remarkable achievement. Our our first demonstration, we had 150,000 people, and I was the main speaker. And uh, from there, I became the coordinator of that coalition. And we organized a plan to go to the Chicago for the Democratic Convention.
1: Troy also traces his father's activist roots to the start of his college
2: years. My father grew up in the Midwest, a blue-collar catholic kid who was raised to remove yourself from your immigrant story and assimilate into the american dream and uh people in power don't lie presidents don't lie um you know you 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 put your head down you go to work you feed your family when he goes to college and his eyes are open that no this is not a democracy america is in peacetime There's no war for the first time. All these kids are getting to go to school where it's $100 to go to the University of Michigan. JFK comes in. He actually speaks with the students. My father was working with the group who developed the Peace Corps on the University of Michigan campus. They gave JFK those documents. And on site, he read them and introduced it as a platform on the campus that very night. So the message that that sends is, the government, this young president, we will listen to you. Youth has something to say. Then four African-American students sit down at a lunch counter in Greensboro, North Carolina, and they're denied the right to eat. My father was the editor of the Michigan Daily. The student newspaper is a very big paper. Well, for some reason, that just sent a ripple through my father and all the college campuses, and the African-American freedom movement in the South changed the face of this country. My father realized that, oh, no, this is not a democracy. This is a hypocrisy. And when you realize that the Constitution does not exist in Mississippi, in Alabama, in Georgia, you wake up to the fact that you've been lied to and your friends are murdered for registering people to vote. This is a radicalizing experience. A few years later America is going to war with a foreign country under the fear of communism, a boogeyman that doesn't exist. There's no threat. There's just competitive interests in the world. 1964, he went to Vietnam for the first time and interviewed people in Hanoi and brought back manuscripts, brought back a book that this is who we're going to war with and explain this culture. And then the draft began to grow and grow and grow. Civil rights were curbed. And Vietnam took over... um, the young consciousness. My father always believed in didactics. So while there's this this illegal war against Vietnam, it's also accelerating this awakening, this awakening to the African freedom movement, African American freedom movement. Who are we? Who are we as Americans? What is democracy? My father tried to foster the concept of participatory democracy that those people that are suffering typically are not allowed to participate so we need to get democracy into the ground level and get everybody participating and so you go to the great american tradition of dissent and when that dissent is met with repression you then naturally go into resistance As my father said, chaos is usually created by too much law and order.
1: Rennie shared how he first connected with Tom Hayden and the history of their friendship.
3: He decided to tour some colleges and just see what others were doing. He came to Oberlin and uh, we spent several days together and realized that we were kind of thinking like two peas in a pod. I mean, it was very much a sense that, you know, this is something that should go national. Uh, I mean, we both had political parties that we were organizing on our campuses. She was at the University of Michigan, and he had, you know, with others had organized a, a political party that stood up for issues that was kind of unheard of in that time. And I had done the same thing at Oberlin College. You know, and, and, you know, in our election, uh, we won all the seats, you know, on our first election. And, and Tom's experience in Ann Arbor was pretty similar, you know. I mean, they took over student government, you know, as a political party. Uh, so it was there really that, uh, Tom and I, you know, and, and there were others involved too, you know basically saw the value of a national student organization that came to be called Students for a Democratic Society. And it played a particular leadership role in northern campuses, just as the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee did in, in, uh, in the south as the student organization. From that time in, 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 in the spring of 1960, I would say, Todd became my best friend. He just was a brilliant uh, human being. You know, he was, he was you know, a very moving speaker. And he was an intellectual and you know, inspiring, really. He wrote a, uh, a pamphlet called the Huron Statement that was passed by the uh, Convention of Students for Democratic Society, in 1962, and it just became, you know, just a red hot pamphlet, you know, on campuses across the United States. It gave vision and hope to young people who realized that uh, with the nuclear, you know, world that we were facing, we might be the last generation on earth. And, Tom's philosophy was, like all of us, was basically that votes are important and elections are important, but we need a much deeper understanding of what democracy means. Uh, His phrase was participatory democracy. And it meant that uh, on a university, for example, students should play a a role in decision-making. They're a part of the community. Uh, they they should not. It's not just the 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 board of of the, of the university that makes the final decisions. It really needs to be students need to be included, and that's the way we saw all institutions, uh, the government, the corporations, private organizations, uh, whoever makes up the organization should have a voice in the
4: organization. Tom was smart as hell, great, dedicated, committed. This is Lee Weiner again. I mean, okay. Um, Tom and I didn't really get along. Um, In in part because he didn't trust me, in part because I thought I didn't trust people who thought they had all the answers. So we never really, we didn't get along. But Tom was a vital smart, committed, wonderful person, a leader on the left, strong in the anti-war movement, founder, helped founded the SDS, worked in the South. I mean, Tom was in no way, shape or form in any way a lightweight. His perspective was was thought through um, and he acted in ways that he thought were best.
1: I asked Lee for his thoughts about the dynamic between Tom and Abby Hoffman, who is played in the film by Sasha Baron Cohen. I think that
4: one of the pieces uh, that people terribly underestimate is just how political Abby was. That um, it's true, his his connections to acid and music and free food and the the. Counterculture made Tom totally nuts, um, so that's totally true. Um, but it's also true that Abs was, you know, solidly political, um, and so that what he was what he was trying to accomplish, he accomplished in many, many ways. He drew people to him. He drew people. He drew an audience to the notion that life could and should be different. Um, That notion was not so firmly rooted in 1968. It certainly was growing, but, I mean, it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't as firm in the ground as one would have wanted it to be. By 69, it was already stronger. I mean, I think, One of the pieces that Tom missed, that Abby did figure out very early, was that the language we used, that is the left used the SDS and the new left, community organizers, crazy people like me, working their hearts out um, to help people who were poor live a better life and have some control over their own lives. The things that, that Tom missed was that that language exploded far beyond the uh, African-American community, and the student community to which that language is originally designed, originally directed to. That instead, it washed over women, the LGBTQ community, um, so that there were all kinds of people for whom the question of how am I treated? How, how is my life being controlled by others in a bad way? How can I stand up for myself and people who are like me grew strongly and magnificently um, just around that time.
1: For Troy, the dramatic narrative is an impressionistic portrayal of the defendant's personal lives. But he says the tensions
2: were very real. There was a collision of different um, methods of protest and um, genius. Abby Hoffman was a genius. Um, Jerry Rubin was a genius. They were all... These were the most... Some of the greatest minds in in society. Uh, There was tension um, between the defendants because they were all alpha, brilliant individuals. Um, But they all had the same cause. They were all working towards the same thing. So you know, no, there's always infighting in a movement. That's just how it is. The left still cannibalizes itself today.
1: For Lee and Rennie, who lived through the events, the memories remain visceral. Here's Lee.
4: There were days and days, nights and nights, of fighting with the police on the streets before the climactic struggle on Michigan Avenue uh, near Grant Park. So by that time none of us were, had any fantasies that it was anything other than a struggle for survival and a struggle and a fight to continue to express our opposition to the war and our opposition to a brutal politics and a, a brutal government.
1: I asked Lee whether he remembers feeling afraid.
4: I think I, I feared certainly getting beaten up Uh, and being thrown into jail and roughed up in jail. But none of us were virgins. We'd all been arrested. We'd all been in jail before. Um, I don't think I feared for my life. That may have been because I was stupid. Um, It may have been because I had some fantasy that the police uh, would hold back at least lethal force. They didn't. Uh, um, during during those de- during the demonstrations, somebody was killed, but I didn't feel myself threatened that way. In the summer of '68, I figured the worst that'll happen, I'd get get my head cracked, up and a couple of bones, couple of bones broken. But that's the price you have to sometimes pay. The movie demonstrates um, not a fearlessness but at least a willingness to put aside that fear to accomplish, try to accomplish something far more important, which is try to make America better. And that's what we were trying to do. I mean, of all of us, Ronnie was the one who was hurt the most by the police, um, uh, trapped in, a, in, a, in Grand Park,
3: when they came for me, uh, I, I mean, I literally could hear people kill Davis, kill Davis. You know, I was hit on the head and knocked to the ground, and uh, and I was still conscious, and I was able to kind of crawl along the ground with my arms, uh, but I was being slammed, you know, with the and you know, it, it was a it was a challenging moment, there's no doubt. I think what really saved me that day was a small chain-link fence. I came to this fence and was able to climb a bit under that fence, and it gave me two or three seconds to stand up and get in the crowd. And and then I I did pass out. But, um, you know, <laughs> it, was, it was just phenomenal, really, that this was happening, but to give you an idea of the impact that we were having in Chicago. I mean, I did have to go to a hospital. I went to a hospital. It was a county hospital. I got 13 stitches. And the police realized that I had to be there, so they decided to do a room-by-room search. And um, to my amazement, even today, uh, there were nurses who put me on a, a you know, moving table, covered me with a sheet, and moved me from room to room, literally hiding me from the police search until they could get me to an exit and 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 out out the door. So I was never arrested. I was just amazed that, you know, people working for the county would risk their entire career, you know, just to basically protect me from the police. But it gives you an idea of the impact that that this police riot was having, you know, on ordinary people in, in Chicago.
1: As the trial got underway, Rennie understood both the stakes and the opportunity.
3: We were facing 10 years in jail. So we were, uh, nobody wanted to go to jail, but we certainly realized that this was a unique moment. I mean, the New York Times, uh, on the opening day of our trial, described it as the most significant Political trial in American history, we we understood that this was an opportunity to actually put the government on trial. So that's what we proceeded to do.
1: Judge Hoffman, played in the film by Frank Langella, is a central figure whose behavior is both confounding and outrageous. Lee shared his thoughts on the impact of the judge's conduct.
4: He was pretty good for us. Um, Yeah. Um, he helped the media pick sides. Um, and he was very easily caricatured. Um, and he was, the degree of his bias towards the, the prosecution, towards the government was stunning. And, um, it would have been funny, except that, of course, that we he could put us he could and did put us all in jail. Several people who have, who have seen the movie call me up and ask, "Oh, was that real? Was, was that as terrible?" I said, "I said, excuse me, yeah, it was real." And if anything, it's an understatement um, because what it was was month after month after month after month. It went on forever. Um, and if you find yourself locked in a room, surrounded by federal marshals, not able to leave the city without um, sending, uh, notifying the marshals when you went out to speak, and we were speaking three and four times a, a night or outside of Chicago, so we were on the road all the time, coming back to, this, coming back to the trial, exhausted and tired. Um... So, yeah, the the movie catches very much um, the flavor, the style, the threat um, that hung over that trial.
1: In the aftermath of the trial, life for the defendants would look very different. Troy reflected on his father's experience.
2: What's remarkable to me is that he could he was put into such a dark place by the end of this trial and in a few years later he ran for Senate he completely turned his life around and re-entered the democratic process as a test to see well how many people out there share our ideals our progressive ideas and he got a million votes he said, okay That's something. And it built. And then when he ran for assembly, the world had changed. So, he spent uh, 18 or 19 years in the California legislature, uh, I think uh, most of which was under Republican rule. He helped create um, renters' rights, uh, rent control, rather, in Santa Monica. So if you have a nice apartment in Santa Monica that's near the beach and you can afford it, it's because of him. Um, he was a pioneer in the environmental movement. Um, and then I would say the two biggest causes the, that I was engaged with him towards the end, well, one of which I was engaged with him, was he when he was in the Senate, uh, we met some former gang members who... Uh, were drafting ceasefires in their communities to um, stop the violence. And so he helped them broker these ceasefire agreements and um, subsequently hired them all to work in his Senate office. So the Senate office was filled with people who had gotten out of prison and tattooed up and down their body, and he would bring them to Sacramento, and they would draft legislation sort of protecting um, Um, people that were falling into the cracks or wanted to transition out of um, gang warfare. Truth in Watts still holds on today from that. That was uh, reconstituted in 96. My dad's final passion was um, the last battle in war is for the battle of memory because whoever controls the memory controls history. And when you've had your memories and your histories rewritten, then you have no idea what's been stolen from you. And that was inspired by the 50th anniversary of, I believe the ending of the war. The Pentagon put up a memorial for it, but not included was anything about the anti war movement or the peace movement, and um it's you know um, so he really started preaching and talking about how we need to claim our history in order to um, advance as a country
1: for Lee Weiner, it would become necessary to leave his hometown and head
4: east uh, I resisted taking a public role in the courtroom, I had, a—I certainly did more than my share of speaking around the country and screaming and yelling and raising um, righteous anger towards the trial and towards the war. Um, that I was happy to do, but I wasn't going to sit in front of a microphone in a press conference. Uh, because I had this fantasy that maybe if things worked out exactly correctly, I might be able to go back to do the political work that I thought was relevant and important, which is being a communi- an organizer on the ground, on the street. That turned out to be a seriously bad fantasy. Um, soon after the trial, um, most people split Chicago. I was still there. I was walking across Michigan Avenue one afternoon on my way to a meeting and a traffic cop, a traffic cop, uniform, the whole thing, just minding my own business, crossing the street, and he stops traffic, waves to me, says, hey Lee, we haven't forgotten. Um, So I knew then that I would have to leave Chicago because there was no political work that I could do that would keep me or anybody I was working with safe. So I had to leave and did.
1: I asked Lee to reflect on the impact he thinks they had and whether he feels their efforts ultimately helped end the war in Vietnam.
4: I think we helped for sure. Yes, I do. I mean, later I'd be accused of of having Humphrey lose the election. My answer to that always was, excuse me, Humphrey had more to do than that and the war had more to do that than we did. But I think that I do believe that our our work on the streets, I do believe Chicago in the summer of 1968, and particularly the trial later, did help move people, a lot of people, to understand that it was, that being political was both necessary, it allowed them to be their best defined and be their best selves. And, you know, that's what political organizers do. They help people come to that recognition.
1: Troy pointed to the broad impact of radicals and the movement over time.
2: Radicals progress society. When new thought and new identities challenge the status quo, there is inevitably a fight between the new consciousness and the old consciousness. What my father and that movement was fighting for, which was considered radical and outside the system, by time the trial ended, was a majority opinion. When my father was elected to office, he was elected by millions of votes because what he had said was what he had been doing, which they called so radical, was now an accepted norm. So what does that mean? The successes of radicals that that the establishment tries to shut down, the establishment co-ops, and the radicals are left marginalized. And I think that that leaves a lot of people trying to figure out what was the 60s? Why is there a bad taste in my mouth? But the truth of the matter is, what came out of the 60s? The Environmental Protection Agency, Women's liberation, black liberation, the right of twenty million African Americans to vote, the end of legal lynching in this country, the end of a war, the prevention of several wars—great. This is what rebels do. You know why there's uh, 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 crosswalks and handicapped sidewalks? Because. Handicapped people took over state off uh, capitals. They went in in their wheelchairs and they demanded to be heard. They were vilified. They were called all sorts of different things. That's what happens. MLK was hated. He was murdered. Now he's on a postage stamp. Same with Malcolm X. Postage stamp. The civil rights movement has been adopted as a normal American victory, that this is who we are, the establishment, it's owned by the establishment. It was created by radicals. It was created by people who said, enough is enough. You got to respect the radicals, even when they make you uncomfortable. And in fact, when they make you uncomfortable is when you should be gracious and say thank you. As we conclude this episode, I leave
1: you with Rennie Davis and his thoughts on what he hoped audiences might take away from the film. For context for our listeners, Rennie shared these sentiments just three weeks before election night, November 3rd, 2020.
3: Well, I think everybody today is is very, uh, you know, not, not well, Every a lot of people are very concerned about uh, where our country is going. we you know, the same way that Chicago took authoritarian steps to deny basic constitutional rights. We're seeing the erosion of those kinds of rights today in, in the in, in our present government too. So uh, you know, yes, an election is happening, but what is going to be occurring, you know, right after the election when it's being disputed by the president, and it's not clear that the president is gonna basically uh, you know, turn over power as is the tradition uh I think we're going to see a level of fear in the in, not just in this country but in the world about where we're going, where do we go as a as a country and so putting the government on trial uh was something that really did happen in nineteen sixty eight and uh, the ability to do that again is you know is a question that's before us. can we do it? will we do it? And so that's why the timing of this film is so so precious, really. It's, it's really inspiring that, you know, we've done this before and we can do it again.
1: I hope you've enjoyed this episode. The Trial of the Chicago 7 is streaming now on Netflix. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you've been listening. Thank you for joining us.